that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse... Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. That you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, do you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood forth to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, the crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. He touched the man's ear and healed him.
Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you will come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. I know this is somewhat rhetorical for those of us who live here in the Flint Hills with all of our great unpaved roads. But have you ever been cruising along merrily, minding your own business, when suddenly your tires, the suspension, or the cooling system began to give you a fit? When those unplanned events of trouble arise, your attitude in the moment will largely be shaped by your preparedness. Is my cell phone charged? Did I subscribe to AAA? Did I buy the road hazard option? Is there a gallon of water or coolant in the trunk? Or it may be something as simple as, do I know how to get the spare out of the trunk or out from under the truck? See, just as road hazards are best handled with proper forethought and preparation, in today's text, Jesus gives the disciples a crash course in survival before they enter the most unexpected Four days of their lives. Beginning in verse 35 of Luke 22, I see that the disciples are told by Christ that they must prepare. They must prepare because God will provide all that you need in the moment that you need it which is what I see in verse 35. Have I not always met all of your needs? Did you ever lack anything? And they said, no, we have lacked nothing. Because God has always provided all things. In the past, he has provided. So in the present, we are taken care of. As a matter of fact, we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He has already provided all things. We kind of had the word picture in our Fellowship Hall Sunday School class of the furnace is generating heat and the vents are full of heat, all we have to do is open up the vent and allow it to come in. And God has already granted to us all things if we would simply allow His Holy Spirit access to give us what God has provided. He's provided in the past so that we are supplied in the present, and he also promises to supply into the future. For Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, And my God will supply 
every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God has provided, we are supplied, and he will supply. I have a friend who is a sergeant in the National Guard. He's located, look at that, the batteries are out. Have you been messing with my pointer again, Casey? <laughs> bye, bye, bye. In, on the front row in the middle is my friend Glenn. This is a true story, a verifiable story. You can look up Glenn Zink on Facebook and verify. I told him yesterday I'd be telling his story this morning. He served in the National Guard while also serving as a policeman in our community. And on this Sunday, before Veterans Day, I'd like to retell a tale from a soldier. Since we have the Navy and we have the Air Force, let's look to the Army to round out the story. Glenn was one who got called to participate in the early days of search operations when the Murrah building was bombed in 1995. And because of the physical and the emotional toll on the rescuers, they had very strict time limits on how long they could be in the debris field until they had to exfil and participate in a stress debriefing. Glenn personally told me when I was riding in his police car one night how his team came upon some rebar that kept them from moving forward. If they went back for a um, saw or a pair of bolt cutters, their time limit would expire when they went back so that they would not be allowed to re-enter into the debris. Sergeant Zink told me that he asked the Lord for direction, and when he looked over his shoulder, there was a pair of bolt cutters in an elevator shaft where they should not have been. Glenn said that that moment that he attributed to God's answer to prayer. And because God had answered his prayer, it gave him the strength and the determination to continue in that operation until he was no longer needed. He later told me that he had no idea how those cutters got there. They could have been left by a previous crew, which would have been out of protocol. Or they could have supernaturally been placed there. But he attests he did not see them until after he prayed. So no matter how they got there, God provided what he needed in the moment. And Jesus is telling the disciples, you must prepare because God will give you what you need in the moment. As Jesus begins to explain the upcoming difficult times, the first thing he had to remind the disciples is, I've got your six. I've got your back. I will take care of what you need. Have you ever lacked? They said, We've lacked nothing. And God promises he will provide in our time of need. But it's also important that we 
take God's good gift, his provision, and not use his provision as an excuse for foolishness. Verse 36 says you're about to go into an environment where it would be wise to have a sword. Now, this is not a long, broad sword for doing battle. It's actually a short dagger, much like a hunting knife that would be used to clean game. Basically, what Jesus is telling them is, you need to get the equipment that is needed for the circumstances you will face. A hunter does not head to the blind with a fishing pole. A scuba diver does not bring a shotgun underwater. And none of us would take a 9 by 13 casserole to weed our garden. Jesus is saying, get the tools that are appropriate for your circumstance. Because God will provide what we need. It's important for us to realize that faith is not an excuse for recklessness. But we must be wise as we trust God to take care of us. Because our participation in God's plan is part of His plan. It's not that we should be reckless in order to entice some situation, but we can rest that God has a plan and He is working that plan if we participate with Him. When I first read over this passage on Monday, I asked myself, why does Jesus command them to get swords in verse 36, then chastise the one who uses that sword in verse 50? Well, verse 37 answers that question. The reason he told them to get swords was to fulfill prophecy, because God had a plan. Verse 37 in front of us is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. And the prophecy in Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant, has a double fulfillment. Because we readily see Christ numbered among the transgressors as he hung between two criminals on Calvary. And as Jesus hung between two criminals, he was numbered among the transgressors, and it's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. But what if something happened before the crucifixion that would include Jesus in a band of rebels? What if something happened before the crucifixion that numbered Jesus among transgressors? Because when the group that includes Jesus, beginning in verse 47, acts violently against the servant of the high priest, all of a sudden he's part of a group of transgressors. Even though Jesus himself never transgressed. He was numbered among the transgressors. He was numbered among the rebels Because Jesus' awareness of prophecy, he knew that the disciples did not need a locker full of weapons. So hunters, do not use verse 36 as an excuse to sell your spouse's clothes in order to buy more pheasant or deer gear. 
You can thank me later for that. See, Jesus knows they don't need a whole locker full of weapons. He says two swords is enough. Now, these swords that are referenced by Jesus are one of 12 different words that the New Testament uses for various weapons of warfare. This word is specifically a a dagger or a short sword, not unlike a, a hunting knife. And Jesus knew that two short swords would be more than enough for one of his disciples to respond violently to his arrest so that he would be counted among the transgressors and the prophecy would be fulfilled. Now, lest we begin to think that weapons are the best resource during a conflict, Jesus takes the eleven to the garden. And before bedtime... He has one important lesson for the disciples. And the lesson is that more important than your weapons is a time for prayer. Because prayer changes us. There's one word that appears four times in these seven verses. And there's something very significant about the word that Luke uses to describe what Jesus does and what he commands the eleven. Now here's a little bit of an English reminder for some of us. Some verbs are done to other things. It's active voice. You adjusted your clock in order to be here on time this morning. You did an active action upon someone or something else. It's active voice. Some verbs happen to you. I was awakened by the sun. The act of awakening happened by another to me. That's what we call passive voice. But in the language of the Bible, there's another option called the middle voice. It's not what I do to something else or what something else does to me, but the middle voice is something that we do that impacts ourselves. For example, I got up at 7 o'clock this morning. That's something that I did that influenced me. And that would be um, an example of this middle voice, something we do that affects us. Now notice the title behind me, Prayer changes us. See, the word prayer in the New Testament only appears in this middle voice. It's not something that we do to God. It's not something that God does to us. It's something that we do that changes us. And so when he calls them to prayer, he is calling them to enter into a process where God's going to do something in the disciples to prepare them for the upcoming crisis. See, prayer is never a passive experience where we simply dump our request. It is always a request that at its core admits I am willing for this to impact me. 
When we truly pray the way the Lord's Prayer tells us, we ask in such a way that we expect it to change us. That we will cooperate with whatever it is we are asking of God. For example, if we ever pray for patience, we are submitting ourselves to the events that would cultivate us to respond in a less reactive way. If we pray for someone to get saved, we are submitting ourselves to be used by God toward that end. If we pray for someone to be healed, we are inviting God to do something which opens us up to the possibility that our faith will be changed. When we see God answer prayer, something happens to our faith. See, prayer is never passive. It always does something to us. It changes us by growing our faith. But I see in the verses in front of us, in verse 40 and in verse 42, two unique perspectives on prayer. The first, in the second part of verse 40, is a prayer of avoidance. Pray that you may not enter... It carries the idea of um, crossing the threshold. In other words, if there's a threshold of a doorway, over here is not sin, over here is sin, pray that you may not enter, pray that you may not cross the line into temptation. In our manly discussions this last Wednesday, we discussed the difference between temptation and lust. We, ought, we identified that we often cannot help but to see something. But if we are to be morally pure, as challenged in 1 Timothy and Titus, we can't allow ourselves to think about that thing that we saw. We can't cross the line into temptation. And Jesus told his disciples, pray that you are not led across the line into an act of temptation. Because seeing and thinking about are two sides of the threshold. When Jesus commands the disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation, he is telling them, choose to partner with God in a way that avoids the consequences of crossing that line. When we choose to pray, we are choosing to have God do something in us so that we don't cross that line, the line of temptation. Verses 45 to 46 go to say that when Jesus came back from praying, they were, um, well, actually, let me, let me go back before that. The first perspective of prayer is that of avoidance, avoid crossing the line. In verse 42, we have the second perspective that is not avoiding the temptation, but endurance through a temptation. See, verse 42 begins with a prayer of avoidance. Father, if it it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But it immediately moves into a prayer of submission to the plan of God. I would rather avoid the cup 
But the bottom line is, is I'm going to do what you want me to do. The bottom line is, I submit to your will. This word for will in verse 42 appears 62 times in the New Testament. And only two times does it refer to a feeling or to a desire. So what this is not saying is, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. However, I'll do what feels right to you. It's not the word feeling. It's the word of an intentional intent of the will. Like that intentional intent? That's double on purpose. It's not just your feelings, but it's God's will. It's his intended outcome. And Jesus says, I I would rather not do this. However, I surrender to your intended will, even if that means enduring the cup rather than avoiding the cup. In submitting to the will of the Father, Jesus is voluntarily aligning with the purpose and the plan that was laid out before him. Because God does have a plan, Jesus is willingly aligning himself with that plan. And verse 43 indicates that the Father's will is not for Jesus to avoid the cup, but the Father's will is for endurance as he drinks the cup of suffering. And verse 44 then goes on to describe the extent of Christ's submission. Jesus knows what the plan is. He knows what the process will look like. He knows the price that will be paid. It fills him with agony. Of the 17 different words that Luke could have chosen to pit to, to talk about sorrow or regret, there's, there's a whole range of sorrow words. This word, agony, agonia in the Greek, is a top-tier, extreme word that goes beyond torment in the soul. This goes beyond a piercing of one's heart. The agony that Christ experienced (coughs) as he contemplated the cup that he was about to drink brought agony to his soul beyond torment. This word is so extreme, it can't be translated. There's no other word that adequately communicates agony. And so the word is actually a transliteration directly from the Greek language to the English language because English doesn't have any other language that better communicates the agony that he felt. But as Jesus was filled with agony about the cup that he was about to drink, the disciples found themselves asleep during prayer meeting. And not to be too harsh of the disciples, because I think each of us can identify to some extent with the disciples' sleepiness. And I may or may not have looked like this on the shoulder of my mother, at various times of my upbringing. You know, there are some people who kind of leap off the page for some reason, even if their name only appears one time. 
I say Zacchaeus, and you immediately know the story. But if I say Eutychus, do you have that same ability to remember the story? Eutychus's name only appears one time, but it's a name that I remember. Because if you believe in patron saints, Eutychus may be the patron saint of long sermons. His story appears in Acts chapter 20, but verse 7 kind of sets the stage by describing that Paul had, quote, prolonged his speech until midnight, to which all the pastors said, Amen. I'm not hearing many amens about the preacher preaching till midnight. But then verse 8 says that there were many lamps in the room, so it's likely warm, maybe a little bit oxygen-deprived because of the oil-burning lamps. When our friend Eutychus falls asleep. (laughs) I like verse 9. Paul had already gone to midnight. Eutychus fell asleep, and verse 9 says, but Paul kept on preaching. (laughs) So Eutychus falls out the window and dies. And you have to read verses 10 through 12 to see how the story turns out. See, I think we all can identify with being sleepy when the preacher's gone too long. And the disciples, they also have... Good reason. Because before we give these sleeping disciples too much grief, go back and look at verse 39. After the wine and a huge meal, they then took a two-mile hike out to the garden. And they've been making this two-mile hike every morning and every evening all week long. So just like the unexpected breakdown in my introduction, these 11, they're bone-weary tired. And they have no idea about what's to happen. But before the pools of drool from the sleeping disciples had a chance to dry, while they are still rubbing their tired eyes, we're carried into the next scene. A scene of a compassionate physician. Verse 47 talks about betrayal by a kiss. And while we reserve kissing for special relationships in other cultures, it is no more significant than a handshake, than a high five, a fist, or an elbow bump. How do you elbow bump yourself? See, now you want to know, can I elbow bump myself? See, Ah, there you go. The guys over there figured out how to do it. There there we elbow bump. See, in this culture, it's not something sensual. It's just a form of greeting. And although this form of greeting would have been expected from a friend, Jesus turns the greeting upside down. As Judas comes to give the customary greeting of a kiss, Jesus implies, Judas... Are you going to act like nothing's going on? See, the pivot in verses 47 and 48 is not the kiss. The pivot is the betrayal of his heart. 
And because Jesus knows what is behind this crowd, the crowd acts in such a way that gets the disciples rather agitated in verses 49 and 50. And in a heated moment, one disciple, identified as Peter in John chapter 8, 18, cuts off a man, also identified by John as Malchus. In this heated moment, Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus. Now, as a side effect, I don't think Peter was trying to trim his sideburns. Peter was a fisherman, and he had cleaned his share of fish, but he was not trained in a weapon of assault. And just like the stormtroopers in Star Wars can't hit the broadside of a barn in a gunfight, I think Peter was determined to end Malchus. But being tired, it being dark, and Simon being unskilled, it made him miss. But although Peter acted rashly and he missed his intended target, how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with compassion, a compassionate physician. Because being filled with compassion is not just what Jesus does, it's who he is. In verse 51, there, it's, it's who Jesus is to, be, to overflow in compassion towards this man, Malchus. In the Fellowship Hall Sunday School class, we've spent the last two months in Dane Ortland's book, gentle and lowly. And we have been reminded from several vantage points how compassionate our God really is. And just as Paul raised Eutychus and then goes right back to dinner as if it's no big deal, Jesus automatically, compassionately heals Malchus and then moves right on to the next big issue. The next big issue is that Jesus doesn't scold Peter for cutting his ear. He puts the blame on the chief priest for creating a crisis environment. Going back to chapter 19, Jesus has been in plain view in the temple all day each of the last four days. But the chief priest chose not to act when he was in plain view in daytime. Back at the beginning of chapter 20, the chief priest describes the elders question Jesus' source of authority. And here, Jesus brings up the very same word, although it's translated in the ESV as power, or in the NIV, it's translated as rain. It's the exact same word that was used back in 20. At the beginning of chapter 20, describes the Pharisees, the Chief priests, the elders, they said, By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus uses that word authority as he comes here. And he says, The only authority you have for doing what you're doing is an authority of darkness. You've aligned yourself with the power of darkness. In other words, make no mistake. What you are choosing to do is not aligned with God's will. In the later New Testament writings, it will draw out this idea of God versus darkness. The conflict of God versus darkness. 
Back in chapter 22, verse 3, Satan entered Judas. Back in chapter 22, verse 31, Satan demanded to sift Peter. Satan's power is described as darkness when we look at Acts chapter 26, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. A conflict between darkness and God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. Paul later describes the troubles for which we must prepare and be prayed up in these terms. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. When Jesus says, when you come to me, you're coming in the reign of darkness, the authority of darkness, the power of darkness, Jesus is very clearly saying God's plan and Satan's plan are two different realms. A week ago, many of us celebrated the evil of darkness. But as we move towards Christmas, we are moving to the celebration of how light overcomes darkness, how Christ overcomes Satan and his minions. With Jesus' clear division between the authority of God versus the authority of darkness, we're going to set aside our study of Luke until the new year. Because for the next eight weeks, seven weeks, we, as a church, are going to celebrate the goodness that overcomes the darkness. As we move through Thanksgiving and Advent seasons, I pray that each of us would be acutely aware that there are two realities that are fighting for your devotion. Will you choose to prepare, to pray, and to submit to God's will? Or will you choose to rebel against the God who loves you and continue to wallow in darkness? If we are prepared and prayed up, we can go anywhere with Jesus as we walk in the light. And that's going to be our final song this morning, Anywhere 